Good morning, uh, good afternoon, and good evening uh, to everybody. Welcome to this event uh, with uh, Anne Applebaum. Anne, I'm sure everybody knows, is a prolific and uh, wonderful author who's written some wonderful books, Gulag, uh, Red Famine, which was about Ukraine and the, and the, and the famine there in the 30s, and then, of course, her great book on Iron Curtain. I have to say, Anne, I've read all three of them, and enjoyed them, of course, and bought them, by the way, as well. Anne is currently, if I get if I get it right, Anne, you're now working for the Atlantic magazine, but you've been a journalist all your life, both in Britain, in Poland, and no doubt here in the UK. And I should also point out, and you know this, but I'm bound to say it as an LSE patriot, you've had a, a long association with the London School of Economics. You did your master's here, I believe, in international relations. You also, uh, we were privileged enough in LSE Ideas to have you as the Philip Ramon Professor, amongst many several wonderful professors, as you know, but it was wonderful to have you. And then you were associated with the Institute of Global Affairs. So a long and productive and great relationship between yourself uh, and school. Um, and of course, inevitably, a strong connection because of your writings with Central Europe Eastern Europe, or and of course Poland, where I think you're now based, in your house, of course. What I was going to do, Anne, just to allow you time to reflect on, on, on your book, Twilight of Democracy, The Failure of Politics and the Parting of Friends, just to ask you why you wrote it, what's in it, and what you think it says that is important. So I'll give you as many minutes as you want to, Anne, to outline the, your thoughts. But again, welcome to the LSTU. Thanks. Okay, so first of all, thank you very much. Um, I very much appreciate it. And yes, I do have a long affiliation with the LSE, and I'm delighted to be um, to be to be part of this event. Um, I mean, as Mick just said, this book is quite different from my previous book. So, if in the past um, the, the 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 three big books I've published over the last years, not counting my cookbook, but um, <laughs> three books I published over the last Sorry, few no. years, you know, these were. These were projects that required um, a number of years of research. Um, they were based on archives. Um, they were, uh, you know, in interviews. They attempted to reflect the experience of a lot of people. Um, I, I usually tried to show an event from a number of perspectives. So when I wrote my book about the Gulag, for example, I show the points of view of the guards as well as the prisoners. Uh, you know, I try to explain what it was that Stalin said he was doing. Um, this book, this new book, is really almost the opposite of that. Um, it is a very subjective book. Um, it is written partly in the first person. Um, it involves people that I know and events that I lived through. Um, I did do some reporting for it. I did interview people, and I did, um, I did a lot of background reading. Um, and it really is my experience of living through what seemed to me an important historical and political change. Um, to you know, um, to, to to you know, to be clear, it's not a um, it's not a political science text. And for those LSE graduates who want it to have kind of you know a one line takeaway from this conversation and from the book, um, I'm afraid it will disappoint you. Um, as I said, it's a reflection on events. I am part of the events. I'm a I'm a kind of figure in the in the story, and therefore I I couldn't write it as an as an objective historian. Um, but I also, partly because it's subjective, I allowed myself to, you know, to have use a lot of nuance. You know, I don't 
claim to have a, a single explanation. And what the book is really about is the end of a particular political coalition that um, that that played an important role in politics in the United States, um, in Western Europe, and in Central Europe. Um, and the book particularly looks closely at the United States, the UK, and Poland. And these this this unscientific grouping is because those are three countries that I have a close association with. Also, there weirdly have had had a had a similar. Um, there are weird ways in which they, they, they are similar. And the coalition that I'm looking at is the coalition of what you might roughly call center-right anti-communists who came together in the 1980s and early 1990s to push for the end of communism um, under, you know, under the banner of Reaganism or Thatcherism or in Eastern Europe, um, in Poland, it's under the Solidarity Movement or the, the, the other dissident and anti-communist movements in the region and who created a, a kind of anti-communist coalition um, that roughly speaking shared a lot of the same ideas for, um, you know, for that period of time and which I felt myself very happy to be part of. I mean, in retrospect, I mean, and we knew this at the time but the importance of it wasn't clear, but in retrospect, those coalitions, both within each country and also across, across the, you know, the, the West, had different components. So there were people who were anti-communists, you know, in the United States or Britain because they cared about, I don't know, realpolitik and Russian nuclear weapons. Um, there were people who were in that camp because they cared about democracy and human rights. Um, there were people who were in that camp because they were Christians and because communism was an atheist ideology. Um, and the same is true in Poland. There were there were center-left anti-communists. There were center-right anti-communists. Um, and they all had slightly different reasons for being in that camp, but nevertheless, they were able all to work, you know, with, to, with one another towards a, simple, towards, a, towards a set of goals. And actually, those coalitions held together in the 1990s as well. And the, the general, you know, the assumption that we were all on one side, that what we all want is, for example, in Poland is an integrated Poland connected to the rest of Europe, a democratic Poland, a free market Poland, although markets weren't the, weren't the main issue in, in this group that I'm describing. Um, you know, this, was a, this seemed to be a kind of shared assumption of a lot of people. Um, in, and, and, and I should say, I, I, I start my book with a party that I gave in, on New Year's Eve in 1999. And just to be clear, it's not a book about parties, and I'm not a great hostess, and it wasn't a fancy party. It's just that that was a metaphor for this coalition because a lot of its members were there. Um, thinking back on that party 20 years later, I realized um, that a lot of people who had been there were no longer people I felt myself to have anything in common with politically at all. And in fact, some of them had attacked me in public or had become part of a, um, uh, you know, of a, of, a, of a very different political grouping, a radical right grouping that is very explicitly um, anti-democratic in some ways that has sought to break the Polish constitution. This is the ruling party in Poland now um, to pack the courts um, to make public media into state media and specifically into public into political party media, um, and had sought to change the you know damage the idea that there would be an even playing field in politics and try and rewrite the rules so that it would win. Um, and the party has done so using a very virulent form of um, kind of propaganda and identity politics that seek to organize their half of Poland around an idea of 
kind of traditional idea around an idea about Polish history, and also in part around a conspiracy theory um, that, that we can maybe talk about a little bit later. Um, and as I, re I realized how different this, how, how the degree to which this coalition had broke up, I thought, well, it might be interesting to explore why this has happened. Um, and as I began to think about it, I realized that it had happened in more than one place. There's a very similar, very deep split in what used to be the Republican Party, certainly among conservative intellectuals. There are now some who are very pro-Trump and there are some who are very anti-Trump. Indeed, there are now some who are working to make sure that Trump loses, um, the, you know, ex-Republicans or, or never Trump or Republicans. Um, inside the UK, um, the, the sort of united conservative movement of the 1990s is also broken up with some of its members virulently opposed to Brexit and some very much in favor. Um, and so the question was, what were the things that had happened? Where had the changes come from? Why had these coalitions broke up? And again, I repeat, there isn't a single answer or a single explanation. Um, in some cases, you can look at people's careers um, you know, so we always talk about ideas, and this is a this is a fault of political philosophers. And um, we always talk about ideas as if they exist in this some kind of abstract space. You know, where I don't know, conservatism and liberalism and communism are somehow fighting one another in a in some kind of I don't know stratosphere where you know these ideas exist as you know I don't know helium balloons or something clashing against one another. In fact, ideas are always attached to people, and they're always attached to political movements. And people have reasons why they choose one idea over the next. And so the book explores some of the careers of people who made those decisions. Um, the book also looks at some of the reasons why conservatives might have become disappointed with the world um, uh, in the 1990s and later in the 2000s in particular. And what was it about the post-communist or post-Cold War era that they found un you know, insufficiently compelling, insufficiently um, bold and sufficiently cutting edge and how um, and 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 also how some of them began to feel that their own societies were becoming degenerate or changing in ways that they didn't like. And this engendered a, a genuine, um, in some cases, heart, you know, deeply felt pessimism. Um, and the phrase I use is one cultural despair, which is a phrase invented by a historian of Germany called Fritz Stern, who was writing about 19th century Germany, where he finds a very similar phenomenon, where in rapidly modernizing societies, people begin to feel that things have been lost. Um, and I don't question, by the way, the genuineness of this feeling, but, but, the, but it was encouraged and promoted um, and then again used in politics by people who wanted to use this sense of loss to um, to, to do to do politics. Um, the book does talk about some people who were my friends or some people who I've met. Um, it is not primarily a book about friendship, um, but it's a book about how and why people change their minds. Um, and um, the, the, the point of writing it was partly, you know, it was selfish. It was for me to, you know, it, was, it, re it reflects a genuine effort of me on my part to try and understand um, uh, what had happened. Um, but also I think I wrote it as a kind of warning to people who care about democracy. Um, because up until the present, um, many of us have had a, you know, there was a, particularly in the 90s actually, but it, but it even became worse later. There has been a kind of feeling of inevitability about democracy, that our systems are so great and so stable um, that they will just stay this way and that we don't have to do anything in particular. We don't have to worry about reforming them or changing them. Um, they will just somehow um, 
you know, they will somehow always fix themselves because they always have, and we can all go about our business and go and make money or, I don't know, write articles or, you know, garden in our gardens, and we won't have to do anything in particular um, to stop anti-democratic or, or in some cases, nationalist forces from changing the nature of our societies and our states. Um, and the book is a warning that that's not true, that, um, you know, that democracy has always been fragile. And most of the great thinkers about democracy, including the founders of the United States and the authors of the American Constitution, were very conscious of this. They wrote, they wrote a constitution which was, um, in, you know, in which they all had at the back of their heads the example of ancient Rome and the collapse of the, the Roman Republic. And they all had in their minds the idea that there could be a demagogue who could rise to power. And they all understood the fragility of human nature and the appeal of authoritarian ideas. Um, and they wrote the Constitution with those things in mind. So um, the, the book does ask people to look again and to think harder about whether our systems are inevitable and whether we can, um, you know, what, what safeguards and what, you know, what we can, what, what warnings we can take and what, um, um, what, what changes we might need to make in order to preserve them. So I'll, I'll stop there. Thanks very much, Anne. That was very clear. Can I pick up on a few things? I've, I've obviously read the book and much enjoyed it. The slogan of the LSE is always looking for the causes of things, which is not a terribly original thing, but that's our, that's our kind of motto. What do, you think of the, what do you think is the basic cause or causes of this crisis? Because we go back to 1989, which you do and I do. We go back to the liberal, optimistic 90s. We look where we are today. We have to ask ourselves, surely, where do you think this has come from? Now, I, I noticed in your book, and I'll be very brief with this question, you say, well, there may be economic factors, clearly. Um, that's, that, the obvious one is clearly globalization. Immigration is also part of, I suppose, an economic question. But you think it's more than that, don't you, really? Deep down, I think you do feel that the economics are not unimportant in all this, but there's something else going on. What do you think it is else going on that is causing the crisis that you're discussing in your book? So to be clear, the people who I'm talking about in my book are not victims of globalization. They are not people who have been... Mm impoverished or, you know, or impoverished by immigration or um, have, have, have lost out because of economic mm. changes. So these are all elites, essentially. They are mm. people who are, you know, were part of one elite and now they're part of a different elite. Um, mm. And so the, um, although I, I, and it's, this is not a book about why people vote for Trump, you know, mm. or why mm. people mm. voted for Brexit. There, that's not because I'm not interested in those issues. It's because, you know, there are a lot of other people who've written about them, even I've written about them, and the book is about something narrow or more specific, which is, the, you know, why intellectuals change their minds and switch sides. Mm, mm. But you are, you are right that, the, um, that there is something else going on, and this is something I've, um, I've felt for a long time, which is that the, the change in the nature of political information, so the, and all information for that matter, and the way in which we get and process information about the world has changed really profoundly in the last decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's changed in ways that I don't think we've even really understood yet. I mean, and this ranges from the nature of how we see news and information and the lack of, you know, the absence now of hierarchy. So how do we get information you know, we get it on our phones and the phone says, um, you know, you get a, something about, you know, an advertisement for hairspray and then you get 
um, a Facebook message from your cousin, um, and then you get a notice about China um, oppressing the Muslim minority in Xinjiang and 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 you know and mass murder in Syria, and you know these things come jumbled together. We see them in in in, in rapid succession. Um, there's no hierarchy of importance, um, and so the people's at, people have developed much more distance from politics because politics has become part of a vast world of sort of entertainment and advertising that is somehow distant from us. It's not um, this information about it comes in you know in 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 these different in these different packages. Um, at the same time, many people now get information, and in particular, journalists often get information from forms of media that emphasize and favor um, uh, items of, of news or information that have a lot of emotion attached to them. Um, so the famously, the Facebook algorithm um, favors, um, you know, the, 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 the things that move fastest through Facebook are the things that make people angriest. Um, because those are the things that keep people on the screen longest, and that's how the algorithm works. Um, same thing, the, the same principle works in Twitter. That it's you know it's the controversy that you know that everybody sees, and the, and the emotion that everybody sees, um, and that has um, you know that has also changed politics. That means that if you want to reach people, you now need to it's if you need to speak in a much higher level. You know you need to shout. Um, if you want to be heard among all the kind of noise that's an emotion um, that's around us. Um, and there, are, I, I refer in the book to the work of a, a kind of behavioral psychologist called Karen Stenner, mm. who, who has done fascinating work. And again, it's explained a little bit in the book um, on the effect of shouting really, or cacophony or loud contradictory noise and argument on people. And it turns out that there is, some part of the population that doesn't like it, um, that that is bothered by harsh disagreement, um, that is bothered by deep divisions, um, and that responds to them by sort of wanting everything to go silent and, you know, wanting to block it out and favoring um, leaders or parties who promise to bring back some kind of stability and silence and order. Um, and, uh, you know, so there is, and there is, so we have a sort of group of people who don't who are bothered by this kind of politics, and we also have a group of people, some of them my ex acquaintances, um, who have learned to reach exactly that group. Um, the way political messaging now works, if once upon a time political parties spoke to the you know to everybody and they gave mass messaging was the way, mass marketing was the way of doing politics. Now politics is much more. Um, retail and people, and you can speak differently to different audiences. Um, there's a mm. part of, um, there's a part of, you know, part of the political right found a way to identify and speak to audiences mm. who are bothered by modern cacophony, who long for and miss a more, a quieter and more traditional society, even if it's one that they just mm. imagine or read about. Um, and 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 for people who feel this loss, this sense that modernity has somehow um, has has left has left things behind, um, and, then, and new new political coalitions were formed around people who had those those kinds of feelings. You talk you talk in the book about nostalgia, which I found very moving and very interesting and, and very true. Let me just move the argument or ask the question. You've outlined many problems. Historians are not supposed to draw analogies, are we? But we always do. How dangerous is this? 
to democracy. I mean, because the obvious parallel we always tend to make with any current crisis is always with the 30s, 20s and 30s. Is it as bad as that? Is it as dangerous as that? And are the threats to democracy, which you talk about in your book, are they as great as they were back then? Or is that a comparison we shouldn't even be thinking about? We should simply be saying, look, we face this challenge. It's a challenge today. Making parallels with the past doesn't help very much. So I, th- the trouble with the 30s is that we all know how it ended. Um, mm. and, it, um, and because it ended in a mass bloodbath, um, the, 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 the comparison to the 30s is always a little tricky because I am not, mm. nobody is saying that there is a mass bloodbath going on. Mm. Um, you can usefully look at the beginning of the 30s or the end of the 20s um, mm. and see some parallels to the present moment. And I think that's what, that's what often upsets people. Um, the writer Timothy Snyder has has done very mm. you know, made very interesting comparisons between the present and that and that era, in some of the things that he's he's written. Um, I have a slightly you know my um, I I always ask the question you know because I don't believe history does repeat itself. I mean history kind of rhymes but doesn't repeat. You know you can find echoes from the past without mm. direct mm. repetition. Um, and I wonder whether what we're seeing now won't play itself out in a different way. In other words, um, you know, if once upon a time, um, you know, dictators felt that they needed to control crowds on the street by having teams of, you know, brown shirts or black shirts, um, you know, guys with, you know, with, with, with sticks who would come and beat people up and smash things. Um, if politics now doesn't take place on the street, which it doesn't much anymore, um, then, um, you know, then maybe the, 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 the thing that we should be more worried about are the Twitter mobs that can be organized, um, real Twitter mobs or fake ones, actually, as the case may be, um, to promote or put down um, different kinds of voices and arguments. You know, maybe some of the phenomenon that we saw in the past are now going to take place online and in a, and in a different way. Um, you know, really interesting and strange moment is now unfolding in the United States where we have, um, we have protests in Portland um, that did become violent, unruly. Um, And although, you know, I mean, everybody in Britain should know this better than anybody, years and decades of experience tell you that when you have a violent and unruly protest, um, what you should do is community policing, um, negotiation, you should try and bring people together. Or you should try and calm the situation down, try and get people to go home. The Trump administration did almost exactly the opposite of this. And they sent into Portland a team of poorly marked, um, uh, sort of men wearing poorly marked camouflage uniforms, carrying heavy weaponry. And they sent them in to violently push back against the protesters. Um, in a move almost guaranteed to make the situation worse and to make people angry and to make the violence worse. And, they, and so the, the question is, why, why would they do that? What, you know, why, why worsen the situation? Leaving aside, by the way, the fact that it's unclear whether this is even constitutional, whether the U.S. government is allowed to do this or not. And it, certainly it breaks all kinds of precedents about the relationship between the federal government and the states. The troops being used are customs troops. They haven't been used in inside American cities before. It's all kinds of other things that are wrong with this. But why are they doing it? And the, the, the only explanation I could come up with was that they want to use the pictures. In other words, the pictures of the men in camouflage carrying weapons putting down the protesters or beating them up 
in their first, it's, they're being used on Fox News, and then they will be used in Trump's campaign advertising. In fact, it started already as evidence uh, that the president is dominating the streets, that he's putting down these leftist, fascist, whatever term you want, um, mobs, um, that he's taking control of the situation. And this is a kind of almost performative authoritarianism. In other words, the images are being used to um, to inspire and unify that mm. part of the population that is bothered by, is afraid, you know, is is afraid mm. for safety and is worried by what's what's going on. And mm. so it's almost as if we have some of the, you, you know, the, some of the same ideas from the past, but in the internet era, in a time when people get their politics from television mm. um, and from and from social media, different tactics are being used. So, so I'm not sure we're talking about a repeat of the 30s, but. Sure. But I, but, I, but I would say one other thing I would sure. say is that the threat to democracy, in other words, that we might wind up with political systems that are unjust or repressive, um, is very real. Um, you know, I don't think Hungary is a democracy anymore. I don't think a, an opposition party can win a national election in Hungary. Um, the media is too firmly under the thumb of the government. Uh, the courts are too firmly under the th- thumb of the government. Um, the government has too many tools now in its arsenal now the government and the ruling party, I should say, um, that it can prevent anybody else from 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 create you know from creating the coalitions needed to gain power. Um, while we don't, it's not that bad in Poland yet. It could be. It's not impossible that after three more years we will have that. And and we see clearly again in the U.S. we see that the Republican Party um, is not averse to using the tactics of voter suppression um, or gerrymandering or other you know anti-democratic tricks. In order to stay in power, you know, it it knows that it's a it's a party of the minority now, and so the only way it can win elections, you know, is by cheating. Um, mm-hmm. And so we are already in a stage in several bi- important democracies. They're not all big democracies, mm-hmm. uh, but they have you know where it's not you know that you know will will there be a fair election has become a real and genuine mm-hmm. question. One of our questions, uh, which which comes from a colleague, Graham. He quotes Brian Class, who's an old friend of mine, now teaches at University College London. It's friend a, of mine, too. Yeah, you, yeah, we both know Brian very well. Excellent, an excellent guy. But he, he raises the point about, about the election. Now, you, you kind of run against the, what has now become the norm to say, well, Trump is likely to lose it. You kind of say, well, he could win it on a law and order platform by, by exploiting the whole question of law and order, very much as did Nixon back in 68, of course, which does bring an interesting parallel. But Brian raises the interesting point about what's going to happen if or when, just for the moment, hypothetically, he does lose it. Do we then get to a point where he simply throws up his hand and say, fair dues, fair cop, I've, I've lost. Isn't the worry, and this is goes to the heart of democracy, will he accept a result? This is hypothetical, of course. Will he accept a result which goes against him? And if he doesn't, what then are going to be the consequences? What's your kind of forward thinking on that, Anne? So he's been telling us that he won't, might not accept the result. He's been mm. asked directly, you know, will you accept the result? And he has said, I will see. Um, <laughs> mm. um, what, you know, what happens then is right now the subject of a lot of, um, you know, believe me, a lot of off the record and other conversations among not just among Democrats, but among mm. some Republicans who are worried about what the impact on the country would be um, if he lost and refused to hand it and hand over. I mean, I think ultimately it will depend a lot on how the rest of his party reacts. Um, 
what kind of support he gets, um, whether Fox News stands by him in his attempt to steal the election, um, that will all that will all all shape the result. I mean, I think Biden has said. Um, I mean, there is a you know there is a provision in the Constitution for this. I mean, if on if he loses and if on January twentieth he's still in the White House, um, then Biden can get the Secret Service to escort him out. I mean, so there is. Um, you know, we would we 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 would assume that if if it came to that, you know, the problem could be solved. Um, but I, you know, the, the you know the the really important question also is how, you know, to what degree has Trump transformed his party, and to what extent is the Republican Party now a party which is a rogue party? It's no longer a party that wants to participate fairly in the in a democracy, and I. My guess is that most Republicans would not want to see themselves that way. They would not want to. Um, they would. They would not want to identify themselves as part of an anti-democratic political movement. Um, I mean, there, there's. I'm sure there's a minority who would, but most wouldn't. Um, and I would think that the lack of public support would also help stop that. But I mean, the the, the questioner is absolutely right. I mean, it's a it's a real problem to worry about. Um, we should worry about cheating in the election. We should worry about attempts to 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 impact the result, and then we should worry about what Trump and the Trumpists will do when they lose. Yeah, that's one one last question, Ed, because you worked in Britain for a long time. Indeed, you worked on The Spectator, I know, for a long time. Um, how have your friends on The Spectator responded to your to your book? Just as, you don't need to answer that if you don't feel like answering it. But oh, I can answer it. I mean, no, one fine. I just I didn't want to set you up, but I just thought because you know, I mean, you you do say t- some things about Boris Johnson, obviously, and I'm sure he knows about that. What, how, how do you? I, how, I, I I hope he doesn't have time to read my book. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I, I wouldn't expect him expect him to. No, have done but he's that. been told about. It, I'm sure. I I, I don't know. I hope, I hope I hope not. I hope he's got something mm. else. Yeah. Um, so no, I've had a mixed reaction. So um, I had a bad review in the Spectator, although it's by someone whom I do not know or do not know well. I've yeah, met I read it. Yeah. Mm. Um, which I found oddly tribal. I mean, it felt like it reminded me a little bit of the far left reviews that I got of Gulag <laughs> when it came out in in two thousand four. You know, the mm. sort of you've offended our tribe and and therefore we have to undermine you. It felt that that's what mm. that, that review felt like. But I have heard privately from a couple of people, including a former editor of The Spectator and even the current editor of The Spectator who've written to me saying they've enjoyed the book or anyway, they've mm. enjoyed parts of it. Um, and I think I, you know, I, I tried to also reflect what was the charm and appeal mm. of the magazine and of the people around it in the 1990s, mm. the time when I worked there. Mm. Um, and the um, you know, even how much fun it was to be there. Mm. And I didn't, mm. I'm, I'm not there anymore and haven't been for a long time, but, um, and I remain in, you know, very good relationships with many of them, including, mm. you know, some who are Brexiteers. So, mm. um, so I, I haven't found that to be a kind of relationship breaking problem, but yeah, it's interesting. I, I mm. have yet to have a review from the kind of Brexiteer right that mm. I thought was interesting. I have heard from, a lot of Tories or people on the, you know, including, I mean, I did an event last night with Matt Dancona, who mm. would have, one would have described as a Tory journalist at that mm. time, who felt exactly the same way I do about a lot of things. So, mm. you know, sort of, you know, a lot of the reaction to the book will depend on, you know, where you, what journey you made in the last two decades. 
and, and and also whether they've read the book properly, which is always or whether they've read it, you know, or <laughs> or, or were interested in or or cared yeah. to, about the argument, yeah. or were just you know annoyed by yeah. it. I mean, look, as I said, it's a very personal, subjective mm. book. It, mm. There are things in it that will annoy people. It's a kind mm. of not a. Um, it's not a, it doesn't reflect a consensus. It reflects mm. my... Was it a difficult narrow... book to write, Anne? Sorry to interrupt you. Was it a difficult book to write, do you think, because of the personal side? So in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. I mean, compared to writing Gulag that took 10 years, no, you know. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, you know, and actually some of the pieces of it that were flowed the most were the bits where I was describing something that I remembered because, mm. you know, it comes directly from your head. Mm. I think the hard part for me in the sort of real struggle was in, um, in the analysis and in, and in pulling it together so that it became a book because I had, I found that I had such conflicting and mixed feelings about the past events that I, mm. I found it, you know, one again, one of the things I wanted the book to be was sort of nuanced. I didn't want it to have a kind of banging. It's not a denunciation of anybody, I don't think. Maybe one or two mm. people, but mm. um, but it, but I wanted it to to reflect my mixed feelings and and some of my mm. nuanced mm. feelings about people who I've known and and you know events that I lived through. So in that sense, it was mm. hard. I, mm. You know, there was a lot of sort of lying on the floor with my eyes closed, thinking, okay, what do I really think about this? What do I really remember? Mm. Um, so in that sense, it was more difficult. Mm. By the way, I should say it's not a memoir. It has bits. No, of no, I got that. No, it's, it's definitely not, about not a my memoir. life. You know, you, you, you end up fairly pessimistically at the end. I felt, Anne, um, your analysis, I thought, concluded with a: Will, will you, my generation, we, our generation, really, wherever we ended up politically, whether on the left or the right, doesn't really matter. Our generation will maybe one day be rendered irrelevant because the kind of discourses and arguments that we used to have, at least we could have them. I think what you say in the book is that the possibility of discourse is becoming even more difficult today. Yes. Yeah, so I, the, the, I tried to end it actually not on an entirely mm. pessimistic note mm. because I feel that it's irresponsible to be pessimistic. Um, you know, it's, it's, you can't do that to your, to, to young people, you sure. know, to the kind of people that you teach or, or mm. I've taught or, um, you know, or my children's generation. I mean, it's mm. unfair to them to say everything's over and finished. Um, the feeling that I wanted to leave people with was the feeling of radical possibility. You know, mm. look, you know, there is no inevitability about history. There is no inevitable. You know, it is not, it is not, you know, you know, um, you know, written in blood somewhere that America will always be a democracy or Britain will always be a democracy. You know, these are things that can change and can be, mm. but at the same time, that doesn't mean that democracy always dies or that it will have to, you know, mm. be extinct within our lifetimes. Mm. Um, that these are, these are things that can be prevented. There, there aren't any rules to history. You know, it doesn't mm. have a, you know, there isn't a, there isn't a kind of, you know, upward progress and everything always get better. No, history zigzags like that or goes mm. in circles. Um, mm. And it's up to us to make sure that, um, that our countries go in the direction that we want them to go. Yeah, and it's up to us as well as to the younger generation. Now, I've got a lot of questions coming through, and we've had a very large number of participants in this, which is great. Um, I'll ask one, one question, which gets us back really to the, the – in a sense, the, the elephant in the room, which we so far not mentioned, which is COVID-19. What impact do you think this is having on, this, on, on, on your book? You do mention it in the book, I see. I, th I think it's there. Uh, 
is this going to make things a lot worse? Is it going to encourage further decline of debate? Or, or, or do you think that it may also have some kind of silver lining? What do you think on the COVID question? I'm bound to come in with that one first because that's what a lot of people are asking about. So the COVID-19, first of all, it's a difficult question to answer because I, I feel that it's a dynamic situation and yeah. some things that seemed to be happening three months ago have changed a lot since then and a lot depends on how the virus progresses and changes. I mean, so for example, at the beginning of the crisis, it looked very much like a moment that was going to be good for authoritarianism. Um, yeah. It was a, you know, you know the, the people when, I mean, throughout human history, whenever people are frightened and afraid for their lives, then they are willing to sacrifice freedom for safety. Um, and this is, you can go back to the history of any plague or any disaster, and you can see this to be the case. And very often, it's also been true in history that um, restrictions on people's movement that have been um, laid down in a time of you know, illness or crisis or plague or emergency very often last after that. Um, and so that moment when um, people were staying home and then and people were being, you know, in, in some European countries were being arrested for being out on the street and or, or fined um, and borders were slamming shut. You know, this looked like it was going to be a, a really good moment for for authoritarians. And, and I should say that in there are some countries, um, I mean, some people, you know, in Central Asia and elsewhere where absolutely the, you know, the dictatorships have been entrenched by the need to keep the border shut, keep people under control and, and, and so on. At the same time, one of the dynamic ways in which the virus has surprised people is the way it's also turned out to be true that it turns out that this particular public health crisis is one that is best fought by a government that enjoys a lot of trust um, and by a, uh, you know, a, uh, and by a country where science enjoys a certain amount of respect, where fact-based media are the most important media that most people read and listen to. Um, and it also has turned out that certain kinds of, I mean, they're sometimes called populists, but are anti-pluralist or, um, uh, but, you know, leaders, including Donald Trump, but also the president of Brazil, um, have navigated this crisis very badly um, because these are people who are used to being able to use conspiracy theory and conspiracy thinking in order to cover up and disguise and massage what they do. And this crisis um, has made that impossible because, you know, it depends on, it requires a lot of social cohesion. It mm -hmm. requires people to, you know, follow instructions and also to care about one another and in deeply polarized societies, and it is the deeply polarized societies who produce these very, um, these, these, these populist would-be autocratic leaders, um, mm -hmm. that has proven to be impossible. Um, you know, a lot of people have noticed how, how well countries run by women are doing. You know, there's this sort of story that gets written every few weeks about mm -hmm. Angela Merkel Zealand, and the, yeah. New Zealand um, mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and, and a few others. It's occurred to me that actually the people are looking at that the other way around. I mean, it's almost like, the kind of countries who would elect a woman leader were already the kinds of countries where there's a lot of social consensus and, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, fact-based evidence-based media. I mean, there's a, um, there may be, there may be something to that that, 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 that goes the other way around because that turns out to be um, one of the things that has helped people survive the crisis. Um, it's also turned out interestingly that the real divide between who's done well and who's done badly, at least so far, and remember this can develop differently over the next year, 
um, so far has not been between democracy and autocracy. The, the, the division has been between countries that have affected trusted bureaucracies and mm. those that don't. And the mm. countries that have done really well include Germany, they include Switzerland, they include um, uh, you know, Taiwan, uh, in South Korea, um, Japan, several of, the, several of the Central European countries have done particularly well, Slovakia, um, mm. Czech Republic. Um, and so the, you know, that, those factors have turned out to be much more important than whether a given, you know, than the actual mm. nature of the political system. And some autocracies have done quite badly. I mean, Russia mm. hasn't done mm. very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although to, to, to add a little point in there, I think both Vietnam and Cuba have done quite well as well. And no, 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 I'm saying that I'm saying no, the, no, difference, no, I, the yeah, difference no, is not autocracy, democracy. Absolutely. The difference is to do with the nature of the bureaucracy and the and the yeah, um, yeah. and the public health system. Yeah, absolutely right. I've got a question here, which brings us back to Poland, Anne, where, where I think you're you're now living, obviously. Um, about the relationship of Poland uh, to the EU and how, how well you think the EU has done through the current crisis and the current relationship between the EU and Poland, because that also goes to the heart of some of your, your book as well. Could you illuminate on that, please? Sure. I mean, it's not a book about the EU, but, I, but no, I'm happy. I know. Um, sure. so, so, I, so it is a very difficult situation for the EU. Um, you know, whereas Hungary is a very small country, Poland is a very large and important, significant country. And um, it's also one that's deeply divided. So almost 50-50 mm. between people who approve and don't approve of the, of the government. Um, and so it is very, it's, the EU is in a difficult position of how to cope with um, the anti-democratic um, and, and in, some, in some instances, anti-European, you know, language and behavior of Poland. I mean, should, should the whole country be punished, you know, because of the nature of the current government? Um, should it be punished in the, using the EU's financial mechanisms? Is that the right way to do it? Um, there's a big argument going on, you know, believe me, inside Europe um, about that right now. Um, I do think that it is possible, and Poland has a particular, because of the court's the, the judicial issue, um, this crisis might come to a head sooner than people think because the EU, if it is an empire of anything, it is an empire of regulation and EU countries depend on one another's courts to enforce laws um, and to enforce the rules of the, uh, of the single market. Um, and if people begin to conclude that um, Polish courts are politicized and their verdicts can't be trusted, um, that is going to cause a crisis probably sooner rather than later, um, and it will be it will be sparked or provoked by some case that is you know resolved in a way that people find unsatisfactory, um, mm. and then you could find Poland somehow blocked or barred from certain you know I'm, I'm not not exactly sure what mechanisms would this would follow but would find it you know if EU law can't be enforced in Poland then that creates all kinds of um, uh, uh, problems. Um, you know, the, the other issue has been that because the EU functions as a coalition, I mean, one of the myths that keeps appearing in the British press is the idea that, you know, oh, it's the Germans run it, you know. Um, actually, it really is a coalition and mm-hmm. small countries play roles and there's a lot of horse trading and, you know, policies are hammered out by, you know, these agonizing group meetings between the prime ministers that go late into the middle of the night. And there isn't a mechanism by which you can just exclude one or two countries from that coalition deal. I mean, they have, you know, they have votes, they have say, you know, they have a say. 
Um, and so that, so it isn't, you know, so, I mean, I guess I'm saying two things at once. I mean, on the one hand, Poland may well be on a crash course to, you know, some kind of, to create some kind of new conflict in the near future. Um, on the other hand, there isn't an obvious mechanism by which the EU can cope with this before it happened. And it may be, you know, this may be one of the next um, really big crises. I mean, would I like the EU to find a um, clever and brilliant way to, um, to help democracy in Poland, you know, yes, I would, you know, I, I, you know, I w- would really like that. Um, do I see that there's some obvious thing that Ursula von der Leyen could do? You know, no, I don't. Um, um, it may be even, even putting conditionality into EU treaties, you know, to do with the rule of law is going to be complicated because then we're going to argue about what rule of law means and, and how you, and how you measure it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still my, it's still my hope that over time, um, the example of the EU and the pull of it and the um, and the desire to be part of it, which, by the way, EU is very popular in Poland. It's still something like it polls at like 80 percent. I'm hoping that the pull of sort of European civilization and European legal culture will eventually pull Poland out of this, if only mm. um, through example, if not necessarily through some political mechanism. Yeah, no, good point. On the question of uh, information, disinformation, which you deal with, one of the questions comes from Mark. Thank you, Mark, for that question. We've got global disinformation, which you talk about. Is there any way of managing this or controlling it or pushing back on it? Or is there, are there so many sources and so many points of entry into the discussion, which you mentioned yourself, that this becomes impossible? Is there any constitution, that it was asked, that one could draw up to manage basically social media. So this is, as you know, this is what I was doing at the LSE, actually. And this is what my project um, at the Institute of Global Affairs was. Um, And and the project, by the way, continues, um, although it's partly now uh, moving to Johns Hopkins, where it will be expanded. Um, But I think we may keep keep a foothold at the LSE as well. Um, And we have done, together with a team of other people, we've done a lot of work on disinformation, both analyzing, you know, what it is and how it works. Um, And by the way, one of the ways that it works is by using these social divisions and polarization. I mean, you know, disinformation Mm -hmm. simply works better on people who don't trust their their societies and their own institutions. Um, And, you know, we, of course, started by focusing on Russian disinformation, but now it's clear that the problem is much deeper than that. It's not, you know... Anybody can do what the Russians did, which is use these fake websites and and, and trolling operations and so on. Um, there has been some pressure put on the social media companies in recent years to find ways of controlling it. They have, you know, that's it's a longer conversation. They have made some changes, um, but obviously not enough. Um, it seems to me that the longer term solution, um, and this is what I hope to work on, um, or my colleagues will work on over the next few years. Um, involves really almost stepping back and thinking about what we want the democratic internet to be. And so if the internet is now going to be the main, you know, the main, you know, if it's now the public sphere, and this is where political conversation will take place, then, um, and, you know, and by the way, the the Chinese have already worked out a long time ago that this is now the political sphere, and they've set up Mm. rules that run the internet, their internet, and it's run according to, you know, there's teams of censors and there are words that you can't use. Um, and there's a, you know, careful control and watch over how conversations go and so on. 
okay, we don't want that system in our democracies. But what do we want? So what other than censoring stuff we don't like and arguing about what's disinformation and what isn't, what would a positive vision of the internet look like? So hmm. um, is, it, is it about transparency and being able to see where things come from? Is it about transparency around the algorithms? Um, is there a form of public interest social media, you know, some, some equivalent of the, some online equivalent of the BBC that is a, you know, a space for conversation, which is run according to rules that, that, um, that don't amplify um, emotion, but amplify reason or constructive conversation. Um, and all that, I know that all sounds a little bit far-fetched, but, um, you know, there is beginning to be in, there's sort of, you know, in a, in several dozen places around Europe and the United States, there are beginning to be people who ask these questions, both um, both sort of political scientists and even internet engineers who are beginning to look at those questions. Um, I think sooner or later, we will get to the question of social media regulation, um, by which I do not mean censorship. I mean, you know, a, a nas- national and maybe I hope what I would really like to see would be a um, a kind of Western or democracy-focused um, international conversation about what these rules could be, what works and what doesn't. How do we encourage better conversation um, rather than worse conversation online? And how do, we, um, how do we better use these tools so that they benefit our political systems and they don't simply undermine and destroy them? And, um, and it's, again, a little futuristic, but there are you know, there are, you know, in, there are a number of countries that are think, taking this seriously. The French take it seriously. The Germans take it seriously. Mm. Um, and there, I'm hoping that over the next several years, the, the, the social media space evolves in a way that makes, as I say, better and more constructive conversation possible. And ultimately, it's not about banning disinformation. It's about favoring good information and finding ways mm. to do that online. And that, that's my kind of project for the next decade. I mean, intellectually. It's, uh, it's a big project. <laughs> I, I haven't brought in Russia yet, but you've obviously written about the Soviet Union in, in your early work. Uh, in a sense, it, it, it's, it's, it is the, the banquo at the feast, isn't it, in many ways. The Russian role in all this is known, but is it so well known? I mean, how effective do you think Russia has been under Putin in terms of exploiting these fears? Should we take it as seriously as many people seem to be? And finally, what can be done about it? So, I mean, it's so Russia has for the past decade been studying, contacting, helping, seeking to form these, I mean, so-called right-wing populist, but often authoritarian political parties and groupings all across Europe and actually around the world. Um, Mm. And, you know, ranging from, in some cases, latching on to or assisting older movements like the National Front in France, which has been around for many decades. The Russians did not invent it, but they have sought to help it, um, to movements where they've had a more direct role in creating them, like the, the AFD, the uh, Alternative for Deutschland, the German mm-hmm. um, right movement. Um, and they have sought to to um, to, to help to br- make connections between um, to do funding for um, all these kinds of movements. Um, um, at the same time, they also seek contacts with other kinds of mainstream politicians. Um, you know, in, you know, inside inside the, the center right and center left parties, 
in, in Europe as well. But they have had a special focus on encouraging, pushing um, these populist, so-called populist movements. Um, and, all, you know, and also, by the way, far left movements. I mean, their interest was in any kinds of parties mm. or groupings. You know, and these vary from country to country. In some cases, anti-German, anti-Ukrainian, anti-American. Um, and they seek to push these because that's, it's in their interest for the coalition that once was the West to break up because the, the coalition is a problem for them. You know, one-on-one, Russia is e- e- at least the equal or probably stronger than any European country. When the Russians talk to the Lithuanians by themselves, they're much bigger power. Um, is as even when they talk to the Germans, they're they're equals. Um, but when they talk to the European Union, the European Union is much stronger, much richer. You know, the European Union can pass laws that, you know, prevent the Russians from using their gas pipelines or change the regulations that prevent the Russians from using their gas pipelines. For example, to to bo- to uh, to um, blackmail some of their neighbors, which is what mm. they used to pass. Um, and so it is in the Russian interest to to break up the EU. I mean, it's not. Mm. It's, not a secret. I mean, Putin has, has said it. Um, and, you know, h- how important you think they were in those movements, a little bit depends country to country and how much mm. you think, you know, disinformation, money, um, and assistance of various kinds matters. I mean, my my gut feeling about it is that in some places it mattered a lot. In some places it didn't matter that much. Um, mm. You know, there's a there's a there's a you know new far right party in Spain, which I write about a little bit in the book that I don't think had much to do with Russia. Um, the Russians got more interested in pushing Catalan independence. That was their, you know, that was their um, that was their project in Spain. Um, uh, you know, were the Russians interested in Scottish independence? Yes, they were, and you know that's mm-hmm. been traced. Even if the as the recent report showed, the U.S. The British government never itself analyzed that. Quite a lot of independent analysts have shown. Um, that that was the case. And the reasons for that, again, are obvious. I mean, breaking up the UK would be hugely useful to Russia, which worries about the UK as a, you know, major Western nuclear power. So the answer is it's a, you know, the Russians are a part of this whole process, um, but not a small part. And mm. the, you know, how much they matter depends, you know, does vary, um, but not taking it seriously, ignoring them or saying, oh, it's all a bunch of, you know, it's just made mm. up. Um, mm. is, I think, really irresponsible. And it's mm. important to think about what mm. role they've played and continue to play. Thank you, Anne. I think we're going to draw it to an end there, Anne. Firstly, to thank you enormously for giving up of your time. It's been great personally for me to see you again, looking so well. Welcome back uh, to the LSC. Basically, I think you never really went away and you're still part of the LSC family I'd also like to thank the LSE events for organizing this. And finally, to thank all those who've asked such great questions. So, Anne, it's been great seeing you. Keep well, keep safe, and we hope to see you again at the school in the not-too-distant future. Thanks again. In real life, yes. Thank in you. real life, the real person, not just this image at the other end. Cheers. Thanks.